Welcome to Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss from the Center for Western Priorities, coming to you from the socially distant home office in the shadow of Red Rocks this week and for the foreseeable future. On the show today, we are talking NEPA, one of those acronyms you hear about, but what the heck is it? Why is it so important? And what exactly is the Trump administration trying to do to the National Environmental Policy Act? We will talk to Christy Goldfuss. She's the former head of the White House Council on Environmental Quality. But first, I know that you are probably tired of news podcasts about COVID-19. But guess what? Even we can't escape the pandemic stories around here. This is fairly quick and it's important, so bear with me. The entire country, of course, has effectively shut down. But the Trump administration is taking advantage of the coronavirus to keep plowing ahead with new environmental rollbacks, even accelerating them. Our policy director, Jesse Prentice Dunn, is on the line for that. Jesse, thank you for joining me remotely. Hey, good afternoon, Aaron. I just want to start with an observation. As the country went on lockdown, we at the Center for Western Priorities were wondering if we were going to be bored with nothing to do as public lands advocates, since everyone was going to be inside, the government would be focused on coronavirus response. But it turns out the opposite has been true. Well, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and what we've seen is kind of uh, two sides of the coin here when it comes to coronavirus. Uh, from Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, he's shown a really haphazard approach. Um, when it comes to our public lands and our national parks, uh, they basically suggested that folks get outside um, as a way of, of uh, staying healthy. However, the way they've done that, I think, has been really irresponsible. So uh, they waived entrance fees at all national parks, all BLM uh, lands, national wildlife reserves. Um, and so we've seen a real influx of people going to our parks and public lands. But at the same time, there's been no consistent policy as to what should remain open and what should close. Bernhardt has basically passed the buck to park superintendents. So we've seen coronavirus cases mount like at the Grand Canyon today, some parks have closed. It's a real patchwork. But what hasn't been a patchwork has been Bernhardt's approach to drilling and mining projects. So we've seen the uh, Bureau of Land Management proceed uh, at a quick pace with oil and gas lease auctions in states like Nevada, Colorado, Wyoming. Um, we've seen uh, new approvals for mining projects. Uh, just this week, uh, we saw one particularly egregious um, moving forward with a mining road in the wilds of Alaska that would run through gates of the Arctic National Preserve. What, what's interesting about this project uh, is a mining, foreign-owned mining company wants to build a huge copper mine out in, in rural Alaska, and they've hired David Bernhardt's former firm to lobby for them. Brownstein paid Hyatt, hundreds Barbara Shrek. Brownstein yeah. Hyatt paid them hundreds of thousands, uh, and, and now what we're seeing is the BLM approving that stuff. So basically, just just to sum up here, uh, they're moving forward with a lot of the extractive priorities, but really leaving uh, rec parks and recreation assets in limbo. And so let me go back to national parks first. Uh, we've, it, there really have been mixed messages with Bernhardt saying he's going to leave the parks open and then saying park superintendents had authority. But then we're seeing reports out of the Grand Canyon where... We have employees, at least one concessionaire already sick who lives in communal housing. There are reports that leadership, and we know that the, the local governments out there want, Nash, want the Grand Canyon to be closed because there are big crowds there, but the Park Service has not yet 
done that. I mean, it, we don't even really know exactly who has control over the situation right now. Exactly. And it, this is just an extreme case of playing politics with parks, right? I mean, it, it's pretty clear what's good for public health in a lot of these um, parks, which are, are basically built and constructed to funnel people to iconic places where folks are going to be close to each other. So it, it's a real time for leadership, and we haven't seen any from Bernhardt. You can socially distance in the backcountry. You're not going to be able to socially distance on uh uh, on one of the big popular trails at Grand Canyon or Zion, basically. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So oil and gas, we see these lease sales going forward. At the same time, the price of oil has crashed down to $20 a barrel. We saw some spot markets yesterday in Midland, WTI, WTI Midland, down to $7 a barrel. I mean, this must be creating kind of a, a double risk here because I imagine at that cheap prices, you're going to see producers start going under. Oh, producers going under. I mean, already the question is being asked, where can you store all of this oil that is being produced in a glut? I mean, you've got pipeline um, operators asking operators not to produce any more oil because they can't ship it and store it anywhere. So all in the background, uh, the Interior Department continues to offer our public lands for oil and gas leases. And that's a problem because taxpayers are getting ripped off. They're getting, uh, you know, two bucks an acre, the minimum bid. It makes no sense to continue to offer these hundreds of thousands of acres at a time where there's just no demand. It, it's doing taxpayers a disservice uh, and it's putting landscapes at risk unnecessarily. And then on top of that, if these companies start going under, that creates reclamation costs. If they aren't sufficiently bonded and don't clean up after themselves, you end up with taxpayers on the hook. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We put out a study a few years ago that showed uh, the cost to reclaim all wells on public lands could be around $6 billion. And that's money that we simply don't have in the form of bonds that companies pay to secure them. Those rates haven't changed since the 50s and 60s. So this is a real issue. So then with that as the backdrop, you also have Interior moving ahead with rulemakings, with public comment periods, uh, all of these uh, environmental rollbacks. The policy stuff is still full speed ahead or even accelerating right now. Yeah. And I just to point to one letter that David Bernhardt sent to Interior employees saying he was thinking about them and their families and then buried down at the bottom of the letter um, it said that failure to work earnestly would be a disservice to the American people. Basically, you know, slapping them on the wrist, saying that they need to proceed with this extractive agenda. It's, it's, it's really an interesting push forward. And the things that are moving forward are, are pretty disgraceful in terms of permanently weakening enforcement of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, weakening Endangered Species Act. It, it's a host of horribles. And on top of that, you even have interior removing tribal trust land in Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a crazy one. This is a fascinating case where uh, there has been a, a long running spat over a proposed casino um, by a tribe in Massachusetts. Um, a lot of uh, the opponents of that in the casino industry have very powerful lobbying interests um, and have uh, met with senior DOI officials. So in the background, although the Interior Department is hiding behind a court ruling saying they had to um, you know, take this land uh, from the reservation, uh, there is a lot of politics here, and it, it's politics that, that Bernhardt has been uh, deep into for a long time. 
All right, that's the overview. Jesse, thank you so much. I will just note that we've been tracking all of this in our morning newsletter. It's called Look West. I was just reading through our monthly summary that just went out the door. And truly, I don't think that newsletter that we put out has ever been more relevant than it is right now, given the speed at which the administration is moving on these rollbacks as the rest of the country is rightfully focused on COVID-19 response. Uh, so there's a, a link to sign up for Look West in the show notes. Again, highly recommended. And Jesse, thank you so much for hopping on the line today. Thank you. Our guest this week is the Senior Vice President for Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress. Before that, she was the Managing Director of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, or CEQ. Christy Goldfuss, welcome back to the podcast. Aaron, thank you for having me again. So, first of all, what is CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality? Why is it so important? It's this wonderful part of the White House. The White House is made up of 11 different offices, basically, components, they call them. And the Council on Environmental Quality is the arm of the White House that advises the president on environmental decision making. So very tied to every decision that the federal government makes connected to the environment. It works across the different agencies. So it works with EPA, the Department of the Interior, USDA, you name it. CEQ's main role is to advise the president on the best environmental outcome and work across the government to resolve any disputes between agencies. So that brings us then to NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act. I'd imagine then at CEQ you were knee-deep in NEPA, in just about everything that CEQ touched. <laughs> the National Environmental Policy Act actually created CEQ. So once you've worked at CEQ, you become a very staunch NEPA defender, especially this was back in the time where Congress wrote short, poetic, uh, visionary legislation, uh, not so in the weeds and really painted a glorious picture of how we were supposed to coexist both humankind with our natural environment. So yes, always knee deep in NEPA and very, um, very, very much focused on defending it as we go forward. So how is NEPA supposed to work? And what is the Trump administration doing right now that in, in your opinion undermines that? In concept, it should be simple. The federal government looks at a project, say a pipeline, and decides a route that that pipeline might take, shares that information with the public, and offers an alternative and says, okay, we could go this route or we could go that route. And here's what the static state would be, basically, if there were no pipeline here's what the uh, state of the environment is. And then the public is able to see what are the impacts. Does that route go over a watershed? Does it impact uh, historic preservation issues or cultural rights issues or anything connected to those communities? And NEPA does not say the government has to choose the outcome that has the least impact in the environment. It just says that communities and the public have the right to know what the impact will be and then comment on it. So government shares the information, public comments on it, 
government responds to the comments and then makes a final decision in whatever context we're talking about here. So pipelines, bridges, roads, uh, major construction is most of most of what people think about related to NEPA. So it's a framework. It's not a policy prescription. Correct. It's a framework for engaging the public and sharing information and analysis as to what environmental impacts could be expected based on a particular approach. So then what are we seeing from the Trump administration right now? I know you testified at a hearing last month about these changes. What has you so concerned? Basically, they are giving the industry the keys to the bulldozer (laughs) and saying, share whatever information you feel uh, the public needs to know. And they're dramatically curtailing the amount of time and the type of comments uh, that will be considered by the government. So in the first case, uh, one of the biggest problems with the regulations as I saw it is they have allowed industry to conduct their own environmental review. And we've seen time and time again what happens when industries and corporations are in charge of self-regulation. It just does not work. They've also removed the provision that required the uh, agency or the company that was doing the analysis to disclose whether or not they had a financial interest in the project at the end of the day. So you could have a company trying to decide whether or not they're going to share information with the public. They're going to err on sharing as little as possible that also has a financial interest in making that project go as fast as possible. So That is just a recipe for disaster in my mind. The reason we have this law is because we were bulldozing neighborhoods, polluting waterways, and adding more and more toxic pollution to our overall environment. This just sets us back in a huge way, in my opinion. The the term that comes to mind for me is fox guarding the hen house. I mean, is that a a fair way to describe this? Okay. Yeah. So... Usually CEQ would hold a bunch of hearings across the country if it was going to make big changes. Uh, In this case, with this massive proposed change in how CEQ would use and apply NEPA, the White House is only holding two hearings. There was one here in Denver. There was one in D.C. I mean, is that enough to, to bring in enough public comment? And then is there an obligation to actually listen and respond to that public comment? They also only held the comment period open for 60 days, which is a very short period of time to both communicate the changes that are being made and give the give the public enough time uh, to respond in a written format back to the government. So absolutely two public hearings is an embarrassment. There are huge swaths and regions of this country that the Trump administration didn't even care to hear from and purposely excluded. I mean, there is there a particular reason the entire West Coast has not in any way weighed in in these changes where we have some of the most uh, expansive public lands, federal lands, some of the places where uh, NEPA decision-making is so critically important. And then that 60-day comment period was just absolutely laughable. Uh, we had a large number of members of Congress call for an extension, uh, but every indication we have is that they're just rushing to try and get this done. While you were at CEQ, you 
played a lead role in developing the climate action plan under the Obama administration. There is explicit NEPA guidance in there. And the administration is taking aim at that guidance specifically. I, I'd imagine this feels personal in some ways, but what's, what's so important about that cumulative impacts analysis and what happens if the Trump administration gets rid of it? The cumulative impacts analysis is kind of the heart of NEPA because this is the point where we look at how actions stack on top of actions. So think about a community like Mossville, Louisiana, uh, where they're expected to have a massive growth in petrochemical plants. This is also right in the heart of Cancer Alley. So as each of those very large projects go forward, there needs to be some analysis of what's the cumulative impact of the increased air pollution. What's the cumulative impact of the stress on water supply and potential for contamination? And it's those cumulative impacts that NEPA was trying to get at. You can't look at each decision that the government makes in isolation. It needs to be considered with all the surrounding uh, environmental stressors and environmental impacts on an entire community. Now you add climate change, which is really the absolute ultimate cumulative impact because it's the accumulation of greenhouse gases and carbon pollution from around the world that has created climate change. And to take aim at climate, at the cumulative impacts provision is specifically to cut out any climate analysis in NEPA. Now, why would they wanna do this? We were seeing courts, lower level courts, time and time again, reject the final decisions of the Trump administration and say it was because they did not in the expansion of this coal mine or in the uh, development of this pipeline, look at the climate contribution of that project, the cumulative impact of that project on climate change. So this is a way to basically get ahead or circumvent those court cases and say they no longer have to do that analysis because then they would have to tell the public how much pollution this race to drill more, this crazy energy dominance frame is causing and contributing to climate change. And that over time would be unacceptable and deeply problematic from a um, transparency perspective. So we just had deputy, former deputy interior secretary David Hayes on the podcast talking about that court record that the administration has where they are consistently and almost wholly losing every time they go to court. And obviously, this is one of those reasons. Do you think if they were to successfully get rid of that cumulative impacts requirement, would courts potentially then look at some of these projects more favorably? Or is there a chance that this entire NEPA rulemaking also gets tossed out because it doesn't itself follow the Administrative Procedures Act or some other federal regulation in play here? Well, I am not a lawyer, but uh, I would uh, speculate here there will be a large challenge to this rewrite of the regulation overall. I assume there will be a challenge to whether or not the regulation 
adheres to the underlying statute and what Congress's intent was. Now, how that pertains to the existing case law, I've heard different things from uh, different attorneys. You can't erase what the courts have already said. And that's based on uh, the NEPA statute overall. So that case law still stands regardless of these new regulations. However, we've also seen courts give great deference to the Council on Environmental Quality when it comes to implementing NEPA. So it certainly could provide a lot more flexibility for uh, the courts to view um, a analysis that does not include cumulative impacts as sufficient, uh, which would be basically what they're hoping for here. So I don't know what the outcome will be in court, but it is not possible in my mind to read the National Environmental Policy Act and the words that are on the paper that are talking about transparency and living in harmony between the built environment and the natural environment. It is impossible to read those words and think that the change in the regulations is consistent with what the intent was. Uh, so I, I think there are large parts of this that uh, of the regulations that may not stand. One of the maybe the single biggest talking point that we see from both the administration and from industry groups, because I mean, let's be honest, their talking points are one and the same on this. They talk about how NEPA slows projects down and that the NEPA process overall takes too long. I saw a couple of years ago, you wrote a, a, a bunch of recommendations on how to speed up permitting without also gutting NEPA. So can you just walk us through how, how is it possible? And do you buy that talking point that you have to undo all of these NEPA rules in order to, to make infrastructure projects happen? Absolutely not. I mean, NEPA gets so much attention because it's usually tied to the largest, most complex infrastructure projects. And people will start an environmental review or an analysis prior to having all of the pieces of a project in place. So not only is not only are we talking about the largest projects here, but we're also talking about the most expensive. So in many cases, the reason uh, that a review will stop is that the uh, funding or the public-private partnership or the direct investment is not there. So even if you continued with the environmental review, it becomes less of a priority because there's no way to move forward on the project. Also, the reason the big projects take a long time and the reason it's necessary to have a lot of public comment is because they're complex. They cross different borders. There are state approvals that need to happen. There are local approvals. And in many cases, there's not um, enough local support. So again, that's not a fault of NEPA. That's just the reality of building complex projects in the United States. So what I've recommended uh, and will continue to recommend, Congress has put forward over the last 10 years or so recommendations on providing transparency. There's a dashboard where you can see what point in the process a major project is uh, and what the next decision point is. So there's a, a view into what the roadblock is. Investing in uh, 
state-of-the-art technology that allows project proponents, so the industry, to see what their permitting process looks like and allows the agencies to um, see as well what the process looks like are incredibly important. So we have to invest in technology so that the documents, the analysis speaks to each other. I mean, just a little example, a lot of the government still uses PDFs and you can't then share information across these PDFs. Um, so technology, expertise, uh, as we've seen the Trump administration continually whittle away at the civil service and the experts in these agencies, the NEPA officers are doing five, six, seven jobs. So they don't have the time to focus and move quickly on the analysis. And then lastly, there's a federal permitting council that was established right at the end of the Obama administration that was really designed to bring agencies together to give project proponents um, a voice or really a way to see how the decision is made. And that body needs to be funded well and um, really seen as an extension of the president for high profile infrastructure projects so that uh, things can move along expeditiously. David Bernhardt loves to talk about pages and the length of NEPA reviews and, and the fact that they want to limit the number of pages that, that NEPA reviews can can be. Is that is that just cutting off science? Is there any benefit to putting page limits on this stuff? Or is that just going to open stuff up to court challenges because science takes time and takes a lot of pages? Well, I mean, the current... The- regulations that were in place for decades also really did emphasize a need for the information to be usable, to be concise. I mean, there's long been an emphasis from Democrats and Republicans that these analyses shouldn't be so complex and overly burdensome that we never get to the end of the analysis. Uh, So I think page numbers, I mean, it's kind of an antiquated Uh, mechanism at this point because everything's done digitally. Um, But, you know, the sentiment of keeping the analysis concise, I think is fair as long as uh, you're providing the time and investing in getting the right outcome in terms of the information you're sharing with the public. And that's where I suspect Secretary Bernhardt uh, and I would deeply disagree on um, what should be included and how much time it takes to get the right information. You mentioned the civil servants, the career officials who are responsible for doing these environmental reviews, for writing them up, and then in some cases having to defend an indefensible decision in court. Do you have do you have sympathy for the folks who are there still on the inside trying to do their jobs while being ordered to do things they, I suspect, know aren't going to hold up in the end? Absolutely. It's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking to look at the civil servants at EPA, uh, my former colleagues at CEQ, uh, others at the Department of the Interior, who know and understand the science, who recognize the uh, rigor that was applied during the Obama administration to any regulatory approach. We had a very strong interagency process where everyone contributed feedback, which at the end of the day led to better outcomes. Uh, And seeing all of that undermined in such a political and uh, really aggressive 
but still somehow sloppy way um, is just inconsistent with what we know and really love about the civil servants in the United States government, which is that they take their jobs very seriously and they try to implement to the best of their ability um, what laws their current position or position requires. And so it's uh, my heart goes out to them. I think I've never seen an administration that is so abusive to the civil servants uh, as this one. And I think it has to be morally and emotionally exhausting. I want to switch gears for a second and talk about coronavirus and the Interior Department's response. We won't have to get into the weeds because we we got into all sorts of detail with my colleague Jesse at the top of the podcast. But just broadly speaking, what's your reaction when you see what they are up to in the midst of this pandemic and interiors moving ahead with all of these rule changes and lease sales? We're seeing the same thing on EPA, on the side of EPA, where they just released the enormous rollback of the fuel economy standards. Um, This administration does not seem to recognize science and what we have learned from the coronavirus that has uh, deadly consequences. And when it comes to racing forward with leasing at a time where the public is not going to be paying attention, finalizing rules uh, at a time when the public is consumed by a global pandemic. It is just disgusting because that is not where we should be focused. That should not be the priority of the administration right now. We are talking about a public health crisis that is most the people who live in areas that have high levels of asthma and have um respiratory problems are most at risk, and we are planning to expose them to more pollution, more air pollution, which will just exacerbate problems in the future. So the the disconnect between what it means to support a country during a devastating time like this and what we see out of the Department of the Interior and the White House, frankly, uh, is deeply distressing. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen in November, but now is the time of year when folks who think about policy start thinking about playbooks or binders or wish lists for a future administration. What's on yours? In the event that there's a change in administration, how do you quickly undo the damage and and what would you put on your, your top five list of things that you would like to see a future CEQ address to stop or undo some of the damage? The federal government works through broad signals. So I think the next administration, uh, whether it comes sooner rather than later, needs to set up front that climate change is a clear priority and needs to put the entire apparatus of the federal government focused on how to reduce carbon pollution. There are tools and policy proposals across the federal government that can be used to do do that and to accomplish other co-benefits. But that really needs to be a whole of government priority. And I really think there needs to be emphasis in the White House, if not an actual sort of National Climate Council that would help spearhead that and figure out what the targets are for each Uh, department or agency. And then you could imagine a point in time where cabinet secretaries and their 
departments were tracking their progress towards whatever their goal was. Uh, one of those goals that we're very excited about is uh, looking at how we conserve 30% of the nation's uh, natural areas and oceans. We know as the climate changes, it creates more and greater stress on our ecosystems and especially on species. And the conservation of high value ecosystems and biological areas will be essential for us to uh, do what we can to slow the um, conservation crisis. So uh, 30 by 30 is really uh, a long-term goal that we're very excited about. And we see that in the context of a much bigger picture of how does this country reach net zero by 2050, which is what the scientists say we need to do in order to stop climate change. And if we can take anything away from this horrible experience uh, the country is going through and the world is going through right now, it's that science should guide the decisions we make and the policy that we enact going forward. Christy Goldfuss is the Senior Vice President for Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress. Christy, thank you so much for your time today and please stay safe. You too, Aaron. This was wonderful. Thanks for having me again. And that's it for this episode of Go West Young Podcast. I just want to say that what the country is going through right now is hard, it is heartbreaking, and yes, getting outside is important, even if it's just a walk around the block a hike into the woods if you can do that where you are. Being cooped up at home is really hard, especially if you've got kids, like I do, who need to burn energy. But when you are getting outside, please, number one, do it close to home. Don't take a road trip right now and risk spreading this virus to small communities like Grand Canyon or Moab that don't have the medical infrastructure to deal with the pandemic. And secondly, if you do get to a trailhead and it's full of people, Go somewhere else. Social distancing still applies outside. If we do this now and we do this right, we may still get a summer or a fall to fully enjoy the outdoors, but that will only happen if we lock things down right now and slow the spread. I'm going to say it. These folks going to the Grand Canyon right now, that is selfish. The canyon is not going anywhere, so your trip can wait. All right, climbing off my soapbox... Thanks again to Christy Goldfuss for her time and her insight. My name is Aaron Weiss. On behalf of Jesse Prentice Dunn and the whole team here at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. <laughs>